Good afternoon, Sovereign Grace Church of Pasadena. If you can make your way back to your seats, we're going to spend some time together in God's Word today. It is good to worship with you. Uh, I noticed several of the songs today uh, confessed, corporately confessed, our weakness and pointed our eyes to the strength of our King and Savior, the Lord Jesus. And it is good to confess our weakness together, is it not? And to remember the one who is strong. So it's a pleasure and a privilege to worship with you and to bring God's Word to you today. If you are new or if you've missed a couple of weeks or if you just need a reminder, we are in the middle of a series. We're preaching through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Last Sunday, we took just a short break. We had a guest speaker last Sunday, and it was fabulous. But we're jumping back in to Nehemiah chapter 5. And by way of reminder, just to give a refresher on the context of these two books in the Old Testament, chronologically, these two books represent the, the last two historical books in the Old Testament. They take the historical narrative of the children of Israel right up to 400 years before Christ's birth. Uh, the books describe the events that took this account of these big construction projects are some more subtle things that are happening in the minds and hearts of the people themselves. In Ezra, the main issue that the book of Ezra ends with is the spiritual purity of marriage. Okay, the problem was the people had been intermarrying with others from the nations surrounding them, and, and the problem wasn't that they were marrying someone from another nationality. The problem was that they were marrying people who were actively worshiping other gods. And Ezra, the priest, had to rebuild their idea of marriage. Why do we need to keep marriage spiritually pure so that we don't end up marrying someone who inadvertently causes us to stumble so that our family is drawn away from the true God, the one true God, to worship false gods? In Nehemiah, we've been spending, chapters 1 through 4 have been about this big project of rebuilding the wall, and chapter 5 is our first glimpse of some of this moral community building in the book of Nehemiah. So, what we're going to find out is that the people are similar to the city. The city is broken down and in need of repair, but the people are also broken and in need of repair. Let's read chapter 5 together, and then we'll pray and begin. This is Nehemiah chapter 5 and starting in verse 1. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it's not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself. And I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. 
Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox, six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O my God, all that I have done for this people. Let's pray. Father, we ask your help as we approach your word. We are so conscious that in our own strength, in our own understanding, Uh, Your word wouldn't penetrate our hard hearts, so we ask for the help of the Holy Spirit. Please send your spirit to cause your word to come alive in us, and I pray that you would apply your word to us, that we would walk out of here changed. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. There is an old movie. It pains me to say that it's an old movie because it doesn't feel old to me. It's an old movie called First Night. It it came out in 1995, and none of you remember it for two reasons. One, because it's really really not that good. The the acting is not very good. (laughs) But two, the, the main reason you don't remember it if you're a male in the United States who was alive in the year 1995 is because that's also the same year that Braveheart came out. So all other movies were forgotten, and Braveheart took the stage. But in at First Night tells the story of the legendary kingdom of Camelot, King Arthur, the Knights of the Round Table, a story that's captured our imagination for generations. Uh, Sean Connery was King Arthur, and Richard Gere was Sir Lancelot, the, the First Knight. But the tension of the movie comes from two different places. Uh, there's, there's an enemy of Camelot. His name is Maligant. Isn't that a great enemy name? Maligant. He used to be one of the knights of the round table, but he's rejected the whole idea of Camelot, and now he wants to destroy it. But the, but the, the greater tension comes from the fact that there's also an enemy inside the city, an enemy that's, that's hidden in plain sight, and the enemy is Lancelot himself. Lancelot has begun to pursue a romantic relationship with Guinevere, who's engaged to be married to King Arthur. And that's where the emotional force of the movie comes in, because we know, the audience knows, watching the movie, that either one of these two forces could destroy the kingdom, could it not? And in some ways, it's, it's the, the enemy within. It's the hidden, the hidden menace of destroying the royal family that's actually the more insidious danger. Our text today is similar to this movie. We've been tracking through the book of Nehemiah, and up until now, the enemies have all been external. The the project has been building the wall, and the 
enemies around Jerusalem have been threatening the Jews to, to keep them from rebuilding the wall. And what we see is the Jews completely unite against the enemies. They act in bravery. They're, they're building. They have a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other, and they're building. But now we're in chapter 5, and we get our first glimpse of some interior threats to God's community in Jerusalem. Now, in the movie First Night, it's the, the generosity and the mercy and the grace of King Arthur, uh, the self-sacrifice of King Arthur that ends up saving the kingdom. And in our text, we're going to see something similar. In particular, that if we truly know our king, if we know him, then it will not only make us brave when we face the enemies outside, but it'll transform how we treat each other inside the covenant community of God. Our text gives us four main points. Point number one, the outcry of the people in verses one to five. Point number two, Nehemiah's response in verses six to 11. Point number three, true repentance, verses 12 and 13. And then finally, Nehemiah's example, verses 14 to 19. Let's jump right into point number one, the outcry of the people. Look at verse number one. Let's read it again. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brothers. Now the first thing I want to call attention to is that chapter 5 opens in a a very similar manner to chapter 4. Let's look at chapter 4, verse 1. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. So this, now this happened, now this happened. So the author is giving us a chronicle of different things that threaten the covenant community. In chapter 4, what threatened the community were enemies. But in chapter 5, it's something new. And the language changes. Chapter 4 opens with some names. And everybody in Jerusalem would have known these names. This is Sanballat. He's an enemy. He hates us. He wants to destroy Jerusalem and destroy the wall. He doesn't know our God. But what does chapter 5 start with? The people and their wives and their children have an outcry against Who? Their brothers. This is an abrupt change from the the subject matter of chapter 5. The author is turning us and saying, now we're going to look inside. Now this is a family affair. We've been talking about the enemies, but now we need to talk about the people inside the room. The language is intentionally personal. From a biblical perspective, and even in your own experience, We can deal with things. It's different. When we deal with attacks that come from outside, there's a certain resolve that we have. But when the the attack comes from your own family, when, when, when the offense comes from someone that's in your own living room, it hits with a different kind of weight. And biblically speaking, the Bible is aware of this. So the Bible knows that the way you treat your family gives gives a unique view of the true condition of your heart. So for church leaders, 1 Timothy chapter 3, Titus chapter 1, one of the ways that you know what kind of a guy is this is you ask the question, how is his family doing? Because that's where you're going to get a clear window into what's this guy's heart really like, okay? Later in 1 Timothy chapter 5 verse 8, Paul writes this. This is astounding. But if anyone does not provide for his own relatives and especially for the members of his household. He has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Okay, so there were enemies in chapter 4, but we're in deeper waters here in chapter 5. Now there's, con- now there's bad blood between brothers in the family. And when you don't provide for your own family, you are worse than an unbeliever. Now you may be thinking, this is wonderful. (laughs) Bring this sermon on. (laughs) I do love my family. I do provide for my children. But I want to draw your attention back to verse 1. Verse 1 here, what's in view is the entire community. In in Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 1, they're calling the whole covenant community family. So just broaden that circle out a little bit to how you treat everyone in the covenant community. 
So while chapters 3 and 4 portray united people building the wall, internally all is not well. Now let's take a look at exactly what's happening. Verses 2 through 5 give us three statements that kind of snowball to give us a full picture of the situation. In verses 2 and 3, we learn that there's a famine in the land. Uh, Many families don't have enough food to eat, and they've begun to mortgage their property in order to buy food. And that's a bad situation. But in verses 4 and 5, the situation gets much worse. This was, a, this was an agrarian society, so we need to understand that the farms, the farming they're doing, this is not only providing food for their families, but the grain that's produced on these farms is probably also likely their primary currency. So everything they need is dependent on the farms. When the farms go down, their whole financial life goes down. So in verse 4, when the imperial tax comes due in the middle of the famine, they have nothing to pay the tax with. It's likely that the tax was actually a tax of their crops. So you see what's happening. There's a famine. They don't have enough food to eat. They mortgage their land, which likely involves pledging some of the future produce of the land to their creditors. And then the tax comes due, and they don't even have their land anymore. So some of them take more loans. Maybe some of them hadn't mortgaged all their property yet. But some of them don't have anything left to use as collateral for new loans. And so what do they do? They sell their children into slavery. Now, this, this sounds, we, we should visibly recoil when we read that. My first question when I read that is, no, dad needs to go into slavery. Let's leave the kids in the house, okay? But we need to understand something about the ancient Near East, and it actually continued. This concept of debt slavery continued well up into the modern world, 17, 1800s, okay? In the United States, we don't know what this is like because we have... We have really favorable bankruptcy laws, gracious bankruptcy laws. So we're not used to people going to jail when they can't pay off their debts. But in the ancient Near East, what they would be, this was much more common. You can't pay off your debts. There's no bankruptcy. So you, you pledge yourself as a bond servant to someone else to work that debt off. Now, an adult could actually become a bondservant in Israel and work the debt off over a series of years. And Israel had some had some laws instituted by God, gracious laws about the year of Jubilee when all slaves would be released and all land would be returned, okay? But if, as we read verse 5, this debt slavery is no longer isolated to the Jews. So it's, it, the, the year of Jubilee and the gracious laws God has instituted among his people aren't going to apply. If we, if we look down to verse 8, We, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. So what's happened is now there's a market for these bond slaves. You see that? There's bond slaves, and they're getting sold to the other nations, the other nations who are not going to release them in the year of Jubilee, who are not going to have a gracious, favorable outlook. Okay, this is is a despicable thing that is happening. The creditors have allowed their brothers and sisters' children to be sold to the nations in slavery. What a horrible chain of events. In verse 5, you can hear their heart. Our flesh is is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. They're saying, we're family. We've been side by side building the wall together. Our kids were playing in the street with your kids yesterday. How can you let this happen to us? They're working side by side, enduring pain, hardship, risk, danger, and yet when the famine hits, some of the wealthier members of the community use it as an opportunity to turn a profit. You see, the famine revealed something ugly in the hearts of some of these wealthier members of the community. It revealed a callousness in their heart toward their Jewish brothers and sisters. Hard times hit, and they went into business mode. They start taking out loans, buying distressed assets, indifferent to the suffering that's caused by their lending practices. Folks, I wish I could say that this was something that's just restricted to the ancient Near East, that this only applies to agrarian societies, and that we don't have to deal with these kinds of things anymore. But we all know that that's not true. Most of us in the room today 
Know from experience the domino effect that can happen from a housing market crash and the effect it can have on normal, hardworking families in the middle and lower class. Or if we want to inch a little bit closer to home and really step on each other's toes, most of us have felt the effect of inflation over the last couple of years. I read one recent study that came out in January of this year, and it said that the, the, the inflation of the last couple of years has increased the percentage of American families that live paycheck to paycheck to 64%. 64% of American families paycheck to paycheck, including more than half of the families who are in six figures or higher. Okay, for most families in our country today, a series of unexpected expenses can wreak havoc on their financial lives. Brothers and sisters, when these things happen, God's people are meant to respond a certain way. What difference does it make if the walls of Jerusalem are big and strong and beautiful and new if inside the walls people are starving and going into debt slavery? Do you want to live in that city? Do we see the implications of that for the church? Don't we know that a church can be fully equipped to fight the cultural enemies around us? We can have our political ducks in a row. We can know the hot button issues. We can be winning the culture war. We can know the right things to say theologically. But if we're not treating each other a certain way inside the church, Do you want to be a part of that church? No. See, in some ways, this is a more difficult issue than external enemies. Now the enemy is in the family. How is Nehemiah going to respond? And that brings us to point number two, Nehemiah's response. I want to point out three main elements of Nehemiah's response that I think will be helpful for us today. First, look with me at verse 6. I was very angry when I heard their outcry. I was very angry. Note the juxtaposition between Nehemiah's response, his emotional response, and the callous indifference of the wealthy class in Jerusalem of that day. They are just skipping along taking advantage of the economic downturn while their friends' kids are going into debt slavery. Nehemiah hears this report, and he is affected emotionally. He is very angry, and his anger reveals something. This this honest anger reveals a sincere concern for the well-being of God's people. He's not indifferent. He's not like, yeah, I'm sorry, that's, that's rough, tough times. I'm sorry, you know, I wish there wasn't a famine too. I'll pray for you. That's not Nehemiah's response. He is upset. His anger also reveals a fierce and active opposition to anything that is harming God's people. An active and fierce opposition to anything harming his brothers and sisters in God. The the application for us here today, especially in in a day where we have a plethora of news, news sources, where we may be inundated with stories of people who are in financial distress all the time, or other forms of distress, uh, refugees, war, brokenness in societies around the world. There's a thousand ways that you can get inundated with people who need our compassion. And and so we can can just become emotional eunuchs. We can just say, okay, I I can't handle it anymore. I I don't have any more indignation or outrage or compassion to spare. There's, There's too much going on. Oh, we can't do that. That that option's not available for God's people. When our brothers and sisters are in trouble, it stirs a response. And perhaps one application of this text, there may be those of you sitting in the room today, and your one takeaway from Nehemiah chapter 5 is that Nehemiah still had the emotional capacity to respond with anger at injustice and to take action to help when people were in, in need. So your, your application may be to go home and get on your knees over the next several days and weeks and just ask the Lord to soften your heart and renew your capacity to care for those around you who are in need. So first, Nehemiah is affected emotionally 
by this. And that shows in his response. Second, look at verse 7. I took counsel with myself. Now, this is a good balancing statement. Nehemiah says he was very angry. And if Nehemiah is anything like a normal human, the next thing that happens could be bad. Okay? He was very angry. But note, Nehemiah was not rash. He was not reckless. He stepped back from the situation and he took counsel. He pauses. He takes time to evaluate. He gathers the details, as we're going to see later in the passage, that he gathers the information. What caused this situation? Here's what he doesn't do, brothers and sisters, what, what I am all too likely to do. Not, well, not some of these things, but many of them. He doesn't lash out. He doesn't engage in gossip or slander, go around talking behind the backs of the nobles and the officials. Okay, he doesn't passively, passive-aggressively retweet articles that support his view of financial accountability. He doesn't drop into his opponent's comment section on Facebook and pointedly hit like on every comment that makes his opponents look bad. Okay, he doesn't do any of that. He takes counsel with himself. And then... When he does start to take steps of action, he takes steps that are deliberate and thoughtful in order to address the injustice. What does he do? He calls a council together. He brings formal charges. He's going to speak directly to the people involved and get to the bottom of the issue. So once again, we have Nehemiah demonstrating for us what a wise leader looks like. Uh, All throughout the book of Nehemiah, When he hears bad news, the first thing he does in chapter 1 is he falls to his knees to pray and fast for months. Okay, when he gets to Jerusalem, he doesn't launch right onto the wall-building campaign. No, he takes his time to evaluate the extent of the damage, to build his case before he goes before the nobles and the people. And now he hears more bad news and he pauses. He wisely takes counsel. Third, when Nehemiah opens his mouth, this counsel to make an appeal to the people who have so grievously wronged their own brothers and sisters, his appeal is entirely God-centered. It's entirely God-centered. But this is amazing. Look at verses 7 and 8. The first thing he says to them, the first charge, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And then in verse 8, You are selling your brothers into debt slavery that they may be sold to us. You're profiting off the sale of these debt slaves, okay? Where does he get this information? We don't see that. In verses 1 through 5, when the people are coming to Nehemiah and saying something's wrong, they don't make these specific accusations. What they bring and what, what, what people so often bring to us first is they bring their felt needs. They bring their suffering they're saying, we're, we're suffering. Our kids are going into slavery. We don't have enough food to eat. You know, it's, it's actually kind of impressive to me that the people in verses 1 through 5, they don't go directly to these accusations, but they don't. Nehemiah does the legwork to figure out what is really happening here so that when he comes to bring firm, formal charges, he doesn't appeal first and foremost to the suffering of the people. Do you see that? He appeals to the rock-solid foundation of God's word. Charging interests on loans to fellow Israelites is forbidden under the Mosaic Covenant. We can look at passages such as uh, Exodus twenty-two twenty-five or Leviticus twenty-five thirty-six. The practice of becoming a bondservant to a foreign person, that, you know, do you know what the penalty is? for selling one of your brothers to a foreign nation, it is death. So the foundation of Nehemiah's argument is Godward. It's oriented towards God. So often today, the entire argument is on our felt needs, and it has nothing. We, we never take the time to trace it back to God's word and God's truth for humanity. Nehemiah knows something here. Nehemiah knows that the root problem is not the suffering. Nehemiah cares about the suffering. He's angry when he hears that these people are suffering this way. But in order to solve it, he's going to have to appeal appeal to something deeper than just their experience, than just their suffering. He, He appeals to God's word. These nobles have broken God's law. Now look at verse nine, the second aspect of Nehemiah's appeal. The thing that you are doing is not good. 
Ought you not to walk in the fear of the Lord? Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? This this simple phrase, it touches on a, a massive biblical category. The fear of the Lord. I think this is the most important verse in the chapter. Possibly we might include verse 15 in that because Nehemiah gives his own example. But again, he says, the reason I'm living like this is because I fear the Lord. This verse, if we have the eyes to see it, it gives us the ballast. It gives us the motivation. It gives us the foundation for treating each other this way, for treating each other with care and compassion and generosity But if we're going to understand Nehemiah chapter 5, we're going to have to stop and step back from this chapter and ask, how does the Bible use the phrase, the fear of the Lord? It's easy for us to hear that and to misunderstand it in our current context. Uh, But the Bible speaks in general of two different kinds of fear. Uh, There's one kind of fear that drives us away from God. And this is a kind of fear that the gospel fully heals. Perfect love drives out fear. You have not been given a spirit of slavery that leads to fear again, but you've given a spirit of adoption as sons, and by that spirit we cry, Abba, Father. So there's a kind of fear that gets completely eradicated in the bright light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there's another kind of fear that the Bible speaks of, an awe in God's presence that draws us to him. Martin Luther famously, famously described these two kinds of fear as servile fear That's the fear of a slave cowering in the corner while a master holds a whip over him, servile fear. And the other kind is filial fear, the fear that children might have for a good and strong father. The fear of the Lord is more like this second kind of fear. It involves, it does involve a keen awareness of God's power and his majesty but it also involves an awareness of his goodness and love. When we fear the Lord, we still tremble in his presence, but at the same time, there's nowhere else that we would rather be. Perhaps few authors have captured this, this concept as well as C.S. Lewis. Um, in his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the children go to Narnia, and the first time the children meet the king of Narnia, the great lion, Aslan. This is how Lewis describes the experience. People who have not been in Narnia think people who have not met the Lord God. People who have not been in Narnia sometimes think that a thing cannot be good and terrible at the same time. If the children had ever thought so, they were cured of it now. For when they tried to look at Aslan's face, they just caught a glimpse of the golden mane and the great, royal, solemn, overwhelming eyes. And they found that they couldn't look at him, and they went all trembly. But his voice was deep and rich and somehow took the fidgets out of them. They now felt glad and quiet, and it didn't seem awkward to stand there and say nothing. Aslan is not someone to trifle with, You don't look at the lion and start making jokes. You can't stand in his presence and be nonchalant and unaffected. Being around someone of such power, though, and knowing also that they are for you gives you immense peace and confidence. Lewis is giving us just a a, a tiny glimpse of what it's like to be in God's presence when we are aware of the glory and power and holiness of our omnipotent creator, we will tremble. But friends, trembling before him will heal us of trembling in front of anything else. All else pales before him. Fear him and be set free from all other fears. When we walk in the fear of the Lord, all the concerns and priorities of our life fall into their rightful place, submitted to the Lord of the universe. If the nobles and officials in Jerusalem in Nehemiah chapter 5 had remembered who their God was, 
They would not have treated their brothers and sisters this way. If they had remembered the God who delivered Israel from the hands of Egypt with a mighty hand and outstretched arm, if they had remembered the God of Mount Sinai, the God that judged Jerusalem, the destruction of Babylon, but then graciously brought his people back, gave them a city, gave them an identity, gave them a hope. If they had remembered that, they would have acted differently. They would have never broken his law and tried to profit from the suffering of his people. Can you imagine standing in God's presence, being aware of his power, and trying to exploit one of his children? That's a scary thought. Nobody who's aware of who God is would ever try to do that. By God's grace, Nehemiah's message hit home in the hearts of these nobles. God used Nehemiah's words to accomplish what is nothing short of a miracle in their heart. And that brings us to point number three, true repentance. We begin to see a hint that Nehemiah's rebuke is is really landing for these people in verse 8. Take a look at verse 8, the end of verse 8. So Nehemiah brings his accusation, and how do they respond? They were silent, and they could not find a word to say. The first thing that you notice is that the people, they have no desire to defend themselves. There's no counter-argument. Nehemiah brings his accusation, and immediately they hang their heads in shame. You can just imagine what's happening in their heart as the Holy Spirit opens their eyes to see the truth of Nehemiah's words. As they're looking at their brothers and sisters, some of whom have lost daughters to slavery, standing across the hall in the assembly from them, and they can't say a word. Friends, this is a, true, this is a marker of true repentance. Okay, when, when sometimes we know in our heads that we've broken God's law in some way, that somehow we've sinned against a brother or sister in Christ, and we try to say the right things. It hasn't sunk down to our hearts yet. We try to say the right things, but it always comes out something like this. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry I did that, but you shouldn't have done X, Y, Z. Okay, this is what happens. When, when repentance hasn't gone all the way into our hearts, our knee-jerk reaction is to defend ourselves. And it's easy to defend yourself. Why? Because the person you're talking to is also a human. And they probably contributed some sinfulness to the situation as well. But when God gets a hold of our hearts, and we become convinced that we have sinned against the Lord of the universe, and that we have hurt one of his children, the only thing on our minds at that point, as quickly as possible, is to confess our sin and to receive the forgiveness, the provision that's ours in Christ Jesus and to make sure that we do whatever we can to mend the wrong that we have done and we fully, 1,000% and trust into his hands dealing with the heart of the person in front of us that we're talking to. That's what happens when repentance goes all the way down. And by God's grace, that's happening in the hearts of these nobles in chapter five. They don't defend themselves. Secondly, look at verse 12. Then they said, we will restore these and we will require nothing from them. We will do as you say. The nobles, they they get out their wallet. They get out their pocketbook and they start putting their money literally where their mouth is. We will repay this. And note, this costs them something. They have given real loans to these people who are in need, loans of money, loans of grain. What are they saying? We will require none of that back. This costs them something, as repaying debt always does. Friends, I view this church as an incredibly faithful church when it comes to finances, generous and faithful. But I don't want to rule out the possibility that God has some of that for some of us God is gently putting his finger on a financial issue in our lives and I want to say this I feel it would be unfaithful to the text to the text not to say it repentance for sins that involve money always require more than just an apology repentance for sins that involve money always looks like making a change in our spending always or else it wasn't true repentance and i don't know if the lord 
has this message for any of us sitting in the room today. But if God is speaking to you or about your finances, let me encourage you. It is better when we let go. (laughs) It is better when we take the clenched fist that wants to hold on to our finances as a protection. Oh, God is a much better protector and provider than our money will ever be. You are safe to let go of what you're holding on to. Think about Zacchaeus. When he repented, he said, I'll pay back everyone I defrauded four times what I took for them. And on top of that, I'll give half my possessions to the poor. Every time the Bible talks about financial sin and demonstrates repentance, the person starts making a change to their spending. And it's no different today. And finally, how do we know that this is true repentance? Look at verse 13, the end of verse 13. And all the assembly said, amen. And what did they do? They went grumbling away because all of a sudden their bank account was smaller. No, that's not what they did. And they praised the Lord. That This is what repentance looks like. At the end of true repentance, you are rejoicing that your king has seen fit to open your eyes to something that was hurting you and hurting the people around you, and that he saw fit to apply his grace to that to let you confess it so that it can be healed. They end in worship. This is true repentance. This should be astounding to us. Do you see that? These people... These people, their financial practices had resulted in slavery. They had been dealing in a slave market, making profit off slavery. If there was anyone you were going to look at and say, that person is beyond the reach of God's grace, that grace is never going to touch their heart. Their heart is too hard. It's too callous. They've been making profits from the slave trade. They don't care that their brothers and sisters are starving to death in the city. Now, they're joyfully forgiving debts rejoicing and worshiping. What a great God we serve. Now, this would seem to be a good end of the story. They're worshiping, repentance has happened, they've forgiven debts, but Nehemiah, he steps away from the chronological story for a moment to give us his own personal testimony of the grace of God in his life over his finances, and that brings us to point number four, Nehemiah's example in 14 to 19. The chapter closes with a fairly detailed description of Nehemiah's own generosity. Uh, I'm going to run through a couple of bullet points here. Nehemiah has chosen not to take the lawful food allowance of the governor. Apparently, the governor's entitled to a certain amount of money and food, and Nehemiah said, I'm not going to take that. It's too hard on these people. Okay, Nehemiah and his entourage are also working alongside the people on the rebuilding of the wall. So Nehemiah's leadership is not of the kind where he sits in his chair and tells other people to do the work. He and his entourage are right there, side by side, shoulder to shoulder, with a sword on one side and a trowel on the other, helping rebuild the wall. What's more, I love this part of the passage. (laughs) Nehemiah provides daily food, and he recounts it. We believe Nehemiah is the one writing this. Nehemiah provides daily food for 150 men out of his own pocket. Now, a couple of things to notice here. Nehemiah is no Scrooge, all right? He's providing the best foods and all kinds of wine in abundance. He's pr- he knows how to let his hair down and relax, but it's prudent. Once every 10 days, okay? But look, look at this phrase in, in verse 18. What was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and what? Six choice sheep. Okay? So he's not, this is not Nehemiah's plan. Nehemiah is not saying, I'm going to have the the choice sheep for me and my brothers. But all you 150 people who can't afford to feed yourself, you get a half cup of rice each day. Okay? Start working harder so you can provide for yourself. No, no. Nehemiah invites 150 people to sit at his table. And it's a lavish table full of good food, the best wine, choice, sheep. And notice a second thing. Nehemiah is obviously one of the wealthy members of the community. So we can't misconstrue this chapter to mean that it's wrong to be wealthy in and of itself. The chapter must be telling us that the emphasis is on how we use what God has given us. That's what makes the difference. Nehemiah's example is compelling. But his example is not enough. His example is not enough to produce real change in our hearts. 
It's great to read through that and aspire to it. Oh yeah, when I, when I win the lottery, I am going to be so generous, okay? No, no, no. His example is not enough to create that change. But his example is meant to point us to someone who is enough to create that change. You see, Nehemiah left a comfortable job in a comfortable city to minister to a broken city and a broken people and in the midst of the brokenness keep a lavish table. But about 400 years later, someone else left a very comfortable spot. A baby boy was born to the Virgin Mary, and he did not come from a wealthier side of the country. He did not come from a different area of the world where things were cushy. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, he came down from heaven to a broken world, a miserable and broken people. And he did not simply set an example of good moral living, although he was the perfect example. No, no, he went much further than that. He accomplished something profound and extraordinary. Do you know what he did? He paid off your debts and my debts. Draw your attention back to our call to worship from today. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having what? Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside. This he set aside at great cost to himself. How did he set it aside? By nailing it to the cross. Or we could look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, there could not be anyone who was more rich than him. Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. My friends, are you aware that apart from Christ, you stand under a massive, crushing weight of debt before a holy God. A debt that you could never possibly repay. It is insurmountable. And if you are a Christian today, it's because Jesus paid it for you. How do we become generous, merciful people? The kind of people who forgive each other who pay each other's debts, who generously provide for each other. It's by drawing near to your crucified and risen Savior, your King, and remembering what it was that he died for. It's by drawing close enough to tremble at his power, his majesty, and his goodness. Folks, If you are in Christ today, you are rich beyond your wildest dreams. And we need to remember that. We must remember that. He has promised things over you. He has promised to provide for you. He has promised to never leave you or forsake you. He has guaranteed you an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade. When you begin to believe these things in your bones, do you know what happens? We become generous. We become cheerful givers. Money loses its hold on our hearts. Let's have the worship team come on up. As we close today, just have three brief thoughts related to our application of this text to our lives. And the first thing I want to do is I want to commend you as a church. Uh, The most obvious, straightforward application of this text is that the church ought not exploit each other financially, that they should do just the opposite, that when hard times come, the church ought to band together and provide for each other's needs. And friends, that is exactly what I have seen in this church over and over and over again. I want to give you some numbers that are so impressive to me. We are a relatively small church, But right now today, in our benevolence fund, a special fund that we set aside for meeting the needs of our members, 
when they're in financial need. Right now in our Benevolence Fund, we have, because of your generosity, $31,489. That is evidence that you are walking in the grace of the generous Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that you are living your financial lives under the power of the King of Kings because nobody gives $30,000 to the Benevolence Fund if they're worried about their own checkbook first and foremost, second, third, fourth, and fifth. You have been a generous church. Over the last 24 months, we have been able, because of your generosity, to distribute more than $15,000 to church members in need. $15,000. Needs met. Bills paid because of your generosity. I want to commend you, church. The deacons, you have hardworking deacons. Nehemiah's entourage was working on the wall with him. Our deacons are an impressive set of people. They have been working behind the scenes. Many of you probably don't know that our deacons have made phone calls, have had lunches, have made house calls, have helped write checks to get the money where it's most needed. Our deacons are doing a fabulous job. Thank you, deacons, for how you serve. Second, I have to ask, it's a chapter about money. Is the Lord calling you to make any changes to your financial habits? We are a generous church, but I don't want to rule out the possibility that God has something for someone here in the room that he's gently nudging, saying you need to make a change. Repentance over financial sins always involves more than an I'm sorry. It always involves making a change. So if that's you, I encourage you to step forward and do it. And finally, church, there's more than one way to be a bad creditor in the church. You can have bad financial practices that hurt your fellow brothers and sisters, but there's another way to keep an account, and it's by keeping a record of wrongs. You know, the Bible constantly compares financial debt to the debt we we incur when we sin against one another. So I felt like it would be inappropriate to close this message without asking you, Are you holding a grudge this morning? Are you holding a spiritual debt over the head of your brother or sister in Christ? And you just won't let go. You want them to pay the price for what they did to you. Oh, brother, sister, if that's you, let me take your hand and take you back to the cross where Jesus didn't make you pay the price. In his grace, he paid it all on your behalf. Stare at the cross until you're ready to go back to that brother or sister, full and free forgiveness. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this time together to study Nehemiah chapter 5, Lord, and we pray that you would make us a generous people, not for some legalistic, fearful reason, but because we have come into the presence of God Almighty and seen that he loves us. And more than that, that he took the initiative to pay our debts. And may that knowledge so infiltrate our hearts and lives that we become the most joyful, generous people in Pasadena, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.